I'm going to be on the Today Show, and then you know next year it's on the floor, on the cover of Forbes, and next year it's on the cover of Time Magazine. Like I could see it in my head. I thought that that's what it was going to be like um, because I, I was drinking the Kool Aid so so much that you know mm. that's what I thought. That's how I thought all journeys went in, in consumer companies. Um, and I remember watching the segment and then just bracing for this massive surge of orders to come in, and nothing, just crickets. Um, nothing happened. Hey guys, welcome to Startup Hand-Me-Downs, the podcast that passes insights from founders and thought leaders down to the next generation. I'm your host, Philip Kusumu, and thank you so much for giving me the next 30 minutes of your time. I promise it'll be worth it. So today I had the pleasure of interviewing Abby Lokesh, who is the founder and CEO of Fracture, a company that's different from traditional pictures and frames. Instead of printing on paper, they actually print directly onto glass. Instead of separating the picture from the frame and the mount, a Fracture print combines all three into a beautiful and lasting product. Abby had a really interesting life growing up. He spent a lot of time traveling with his parents, not across the States, but across the world. They eventually settled in Florida, which is where the company's based and where Abby met his co-founder. They both had this crazy idea about printing on glass while they were on a trip. And then nine years later, here they are. This is a great story as Abby has gone down a different path and didn't go down the traditional route of raising tons of VC money, which is probably why you haven't heard of them, but they do millions of dollars in revenue and they've carved out a real niche for themselves. Abby is super open about their failures and successes, so be sure to have your notepads open for this one. So Abdi, thank you so much for coming on the show. Sure, no problem. Thank you for having me, I appreciate it. Great, so when you are out and about at a networking event, how do you introduce yourself? Uh, pretty pretty straightforward, right? Pretty simple. My name is Abhi Lokesh, and if it's obviously a, a business-based networking event, um, I'm the CEO and co-founder of Fracture. And this is actually where I think I've actually had to, I struggled a little bit because I was unsure for a long time how to actually explain Fracture or how to fit it in a um, in an introductory sentence or two, but. Lately, what I've settled on is that, you know, we are a photo printing company and our first product is uh, printed glass. Yeah, I think that's a nice introduction and, you know, it's not too, too intimidating and it gets straight to the point, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was trying to do. I, I used to try and really be impressive with my introduction <laughs> and I figured, you know, if they, if they found it interesting, we can, we can get into it a little bit, but I'll let them decide. Nice, cool. Um, I really want to dig into kind of like your early career and what actually set you on this path to uh, Fracture. So talk to me a little bit about uh, kind of like early career. Like, so you, for a period of time, like you said before the call, you actually grew up in, in England for a while. Sure. So my, my early, the early years of my childhood were actually um, spent traveling a little bit uh, from country to country as my sister and I followed my parents' um, uh, educational uh, journey. So my parents are both doctors. Um, we're originally from, from South India, uh, but I was born in Saudi Arabia as my parents were doing some uh, postgraduate training. And then from Saudi Arabia, we went to uh, London and eventually uh, Brooklyn, New York, and we settled in uh, a suburb of Tampa, Florida. So I had had quite a bit of quite an international childhood, um, yeah. and I was really appreciative for it. Uh, exposed me to a ton of really international perspectives and cultures and viewpoints and looking back on it now, I'm really grateful to have had that opportunity. Um, so once we settled down in Tampa, I went to the University of Florida to uh, study medicine. I, I was a pre-med student and my undergraduate major was integrative biology. And, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, it was it was a rat race, you know, there, there was no, mm. there's no sugarcoating it. Right. I, I wanted to be a doctor and I was doing, I was going through the motions of what I needed to do as an undergraduate student to, uh, get into med school. Um, but fortunately for me, I, um, was presented with some really unique opportunities to learn about entrepreneurship, social entrepreneurship, um, getting some internships and 
that's really where my journey started to um, divert from the traditional path and will ultimately um, set me on the path to fracture. Yeah, I can imagine like moving around so much growing up kind of by default made you an entrepreneur in the sense that you had to go to different places and make new friends and, and start all over again. So that, do you think that kind of played a, a little bit into where you ended up as well? You know, perhaps, but you know, I've been asked variants of that question where people are curious to know if there was any sort of indication that I would be in business or be an entrepreneur. And to be honest, Phil, my answer is no, or at least not consciously. <laughs> I, I don't feel like I displayed any traits that uh, made me predisposed to be uh, a successful entrepreneur or businessman. Um, and now, granted, I you know those skills that you pointed out, having to make friends, having to be willing to adapt, definitely came in handy. But I just thought I was going through the motions, right? I just thought that was part of me being a kid and me growing up. Mm. So interesting. And so actually, before you did become an entrepreneur, you and your, your co-founder and friend, Alex, mm-hmm. actually ventured down the non-for-profit route. So how did that come about? Yeah, so and I think this is really the, the best part of the story. So I was in a uh, class about social entrepreneurship. It was called Introduction to Social Entrepreneurship. And it was taught by one of my mentors, uh, Dr. Kristen Jose. And the... The long and short of it is that it was such a unique class because it forced us to put into practice the principles we learn in in class and academics. And normally in college, that's never the case. You're never really allowed to practice what you're taught. Mm. And so uh, we really took the opportunity to try something new, try something different. We ultimately ended up starting a little nonprofit venture uh, to try and help the uh, HIV-AIDS epidemic that was ravaging Swaziland, a country in southern Africa. Mm-hmm. And as part of that nonprofit venture, uh, we were encouraged to try and find a sustainable way of funding it. And we started this little uh, e-commerce side gig of selling art online. So we would, uh, you know, I would scour the web, I would try and find artists who I thought had cool work, and we would reach out to them and say, hey, listen, we love what you do. Could we potentially license your art for a good cause? Any any money that we generate from selling any copies of your artwork would go directly to funding our nonprofit work. And mm-hmm. that was basically the, the nuts and bolts of it. Um, do, doing that has taught us a lot uh, about, you know, the ins and outs of basic e-commerce, right? Uh, how to set up how to set up an e-commerce website, how to um, transact. Uh, how to you know how to try and build a, a presence online, but it wasn't very successful, right? We 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 sold next to nothing because we were full time undergraduate students mm. who wanted to have, have social lives and things like that. But <laughs> along the way, we just learned a lot of lessons, right? And can you kind of like dig into some of those lessons in terms of like what 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 wrong, and if you were to start again, because ultimately you did go on to create an e-commerce business. So what did you take from that lesson and what were kind of like the, the obvious kind of traits of failure that you saw early on? Um, so regarding that particular nonprofit art gallery, we really just weren't very serious about it. And I think that's, that's a, it, it's an obvious truism, but you really have to be invested in the business uh, to, to have it work, right? You have to be committed to seeing it through, to testing, to experimenting, to pursuing it um, to completion. And again, this was just a little side hustle in college where it was more of a um, like discretionary kind of for, for funds experiment. Mm. And so we, we tried a couple things, you know, um, but when they didn't work, we just dropped it and kind of, and kind of moved on. And so in hindsight, that naivete and that ignorance may have been, you know, beneficial and may have been useful, but I think where it really culminated in us, wanting to start Fracture was in, in the summer in, in the summer of 2008, we won a grant to go to Swaziland and to implement some of the nonprofit initiatives we were researching. Mm. And that was just a surreal time because, I mean, put yourself in my shoes. You know, I was this kid who had, you know, um, settled in Florida, you know, lived there for the most of my life. And all of a sudden I was dropped in the countryside in this you know, rural country in Southern Africa with... Uh, with two other guys, um, one of them being Alex, and we just had this 
unique, incredibly unique, special opportunity to reflect, right? To step mm. back from daily life and reflect on everything we had done up until that point, what we wanted to do with our lives, you know, what was meaningful, uh, just to, to talk. And we talked for hundreds of hours because we had no one else to talk to. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So we, you know, we quickly became fast friends and we kept um, ruminating and so circling around um, the idea of the nonprofit art gallery and whether or not there was um, any semblance of a real business kind of hidden away in there, kind of tucked away in there that we could really um, latch onto. Yeah. And Alex uh, was a chemical engineer undergrad, and he had he's a he's an incredible engineer, incredible prototypist, and he had some ideas about art products, um, um, framing products, and that was really you know the start of it all. Just us talking for, uh, for what seemed like an endless amount of time in the in the hillside in Swaziland, Africa. Yeah. That's so strange. So what's a, what's a chemical engineer doing talking about frames? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I, I think that was all really part of his genius. And I credit Alex with so much about Fracture, especially the product and, and the physical, the engineering infrastructure. Hmm. But he was the sort of individual who didn't let boundaries... Um, or walls between subjects or uh, subject matter really confine him. So he always looked at how he could apply lessons from one thing to something else. And, and I think when he was doing his chemical engineering, his, his prototyping, he came across a, a process for depositing one material onto another material that he thought um, could be applied to uh, ink and, and glass and, and ultimately you know what became the first photo what became our first product that's great so did you guys create your first product in Swaziland or was this kind of like when you were, when you guys were there you were like okay when we get back to the states this is what we're going to do next yeah the latter right and I think this was actually the, the funniest part of it was we, we came up with the idea and we were incredibly, incredibly excited in Swaziland but then we realized we're in Swaziland we can't really do a whole lot <laughs> I think and and, um, and experimentation. So, you know, we did our best. I remember going into Bavon, which is the, um, the capital city and they had the cyber cafe and we would, you know, we would sit there and pay for our hourly sessions and, and, um, and research and Google and try and find suppliers and, and use cases and this and that. And so before we had left at the end of the summer, I know Alex had ordered a number of things. I helped him pay for those things. And by the time we touched down in the States, he basically immediately got to work testing, prototyping, and within a month or two, we had our first physical, you know, MVP prototype of, of the very first fracture. Nice. That was going to be my next question. So now, so now we're back in the States. We, uh, you know, we're ramped up, we're ready to go, and you have a prototype within one to two months. And you had finished college at this time, right? Yeah, we were both seniors. So again, as you can imagine... Uh, a little distracted, right? Enjoying our last year in college, but we did have this growing uh, passion project that we were doing on the side, which was trying to investigate more and more about fracture. Right. And so, once you've got the first prototype, what was like the next step? So now you've done this, you've got all the partying and finishing college out of your system. Then, then what mm -hmm. was next? Yeah, so actually during senior year, so in, in the fall of our senior year, so fall of two thousand eight. Um, and when, when Alex had created the first prototype, we, we realized that we needed more funding to really experiment with this on a, on a more legitimate level, right? So if we wanted to see if this thing really had legs, um, we realized that a hardware business was capital intensive from the very beginning. Yeah. And so we needed a small amount of funding to print um, on a slightly more industrial level, uh, and really test this out, test the whole process out if we could. So I actually reached out to my father um, and asked him and his a couple of his friends who had a kind of a weekend stock club. Um, and I reached out to them and, say, and said, hey, listen, we've got this unique opportunity. Uh, we'd like to pitch this to you to get some seed funding to invest in more machinery, uh, rent out a little space. And, and you know, and, and see what happens. And so, in, in I specifically remember in December of 20, in 2008, um, we, we asked for $60,000 and we, we got it. And um, that did not last very long. <laughs> we, we, we burned through that pretty quickly. 
Um, and so by the time we graduated in the spring of 2009, the money was put to good use. We successfully prototyped further and further, and we felt like we had something real on our hands, real enough that I was, um, I decided not to go to med school. Alex decided not to pursue his um, engineering graduate school, and we decided to go at this full time. And we went back to my father and his friends and raised um, an additional amount of money, uh, around 400 grand. Uh, to to um, invest into the business even more, and that's really when it became our our full time first jobs, if you will. Um, after that, wow, that's great. So you've done two rounds at this point, and mm-hmm. at this point, do you think you've you've like fine tuned the product? Were you getting feedback from users? Were people buying it? Were testing it? Like, how are you getting the feedback? How are you iterating? Sure, sure, and and the. The straight answer is no, absolutely not. We had not fine-tuned the product at all. Um, and, and this is really one of the um, the cons, if you will, or the, the double edges of um, starting a, a hardware company is that, like I said, it's incredibly capital intensive. So we just needed that money to get off the ground to, um, to build the first iteration of the production infrastructure um, to make anything. And so it was really only in that fall, during that fall, so the uh, fall of 2009, when we slowly started um, soliciting customer feedback. We, we had just gotten uh, a basic rudimentary website up, right, an e-commerce website that could actually fulfill orders, that could take orders, that could and you upload people's images, go through the whole process, check out, et cetera. And it was a huge learning experience, a huge learning curve. So by the fall to winter of 2009 was when we had, had when we had enough confidence and enough um, uh, follow-up from early customers and friends and family who had liked it and tested it. And maybe they were just humoring us because they loved us and, you know, didn't want to hurt our feelings. And <laughs> like, oh, yeah, this is a cool product. Uh, you know, but we took it for, we took it at face value and, and ran with it. And we, we opened our doors in, in December of 2009, you know, digitally, quote-unquote, we, we opened our doors um, to actually start taking business. Nice. So that's like a, a year in the making, right? Yeah, yeah. It was it was a year in the making, and um, you know, if I, if I if I had been paying attention more, um, I it would have been a really good lesson in that um, things took things took and take a whole lot longer than you think they will. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I you know, looking back on it now, um, I wouldn't have thought it would have taken us a year to kind of get the website up and going, but it did. And it was really just a, a, a small taste of what was to come in, t- in terms of how long things took. Yeah. I think that's kind of like the, the biggest lesson most entrepreneurs always find out the hard way. Like things take longer than you think always. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. I, I mean, we could, we could dig right into this because that's probably the biggest lesson um, I've taken from this entire experience. And it's still something I struggle with is patience. Mm. I, I um, I realized I'm inherently impatient, but I've I've learned to somehow temper that. But you know, I, I remember actually just came across my business plan from September of 2008, and it had our financial projections, and I just laughed when I, when I read them again. <laughs> yeah. They were, you know, looking back on it now, they're so uh, so ambitious, right? I was I had projected we'd be doing 25 million in in five years, wow. and it was like this, you know, beautiful. You know, a, a hockey hockey stick curve. You know the classic one they show you in, yeah. in NBA case studies. Yeah, <laughs> and I was just naive, and you know, um, it was it was nothing at all like that. It, it, it takes a lot longer than than what I imagined. Absolutely, we'll, we'll get into that as well later on in the show. Sure, sure. But um, so years gone now. You've iterated. You've got everything set. You've got the four hundred thousand dollars. The website's up. How are you guys getting <clears throat> your first customers? So we. Taking a step back, we didn't honestly have a very good customer acquisition strategy. Um, our marketing mindset or our marketing formula was very scattershot. It was try to do whatever you could to try and acquire customers, which I don't know if, if that's very different than any startup in its, in its most early days, but I think because neither Alex nor I had a marketing background or a business background, um, it was a little harder for us. To, to understand what it took to market a consumer product. So, um, you know, we just tried everything. We tried little Google AdWords, tried little Facebook advertising, little Facebook marketing, um, tried the gorilla slash word of mouth um, angle. And, you know, the our first 
true stroke of success didn't happen till, and I specifically remember the day, uh, October 14th, 2010. Mm. So it's almost a year after that, yeah. after we first launched. Uh, which was, um, you know, I'm sure you've heard of TechCrunch, it's, it's incredibly popular, yeah. um, tech blog, and um, they had a photo week going on, and I just thought it was a perfect fit. Okay, you know, we're, we're a tech photo product, and you know, they're a tech blog promoting photo week, and so we just had all of our friends and family bombard their tip line to try and get us on TechCrunch um, to, to let them know about what we were doing. And we didn't know if it worked or not, but... As, as it would happen, um, on the morning of uh, October 14th, 2010, I believe it was a Thursday, I was just sitting there, um, I think checking orders, because we have this screen where you can check orders, it's a little addicting, you just keep hitting the refresh button uh, to see if orders coming in. It's not a healthy habit. But, um, what ended up happening was I just started seeing orders pour in, like again, relatively, right? It went from a trickle to a a steady stream of orders pouring in. Mm. And I'm thinking to myself, what is going on? And in the back of my mind, I wondered, wait a second, did, did we successfully get through to TechCrunch? So I booked it to the TechCrunch homepage, and you know, there we were, um, one of the editors, one of the writers, um, one of our friends had gone through to, uh, to, to TechCrunch, and one of the editors had picked it up, and they wrote a blog about us. And that kind of um, snowballed into our first successful marketing tactic. From there, other websites are about us, uh, from the TechCrunch blog, and that kind of sustained us for, for a couple months. Wow. So it's kind of like a PR. It kind of like you did plan for it, but you didn't plan for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, that's honestly a fair way of saying it. We, we, we had hoped, right? We had hoped, we had dreamed that that was going to happen. And mm. fortunately, we had the production infrastructure to, 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 to keep up with the orders that were coming in. I think just barely. But th there's another lesson learned in that, though, was that that's not sustainable, right? That, I mean, that's great. It's a little surge in orders. Mm. But um, it, it, it we needed to continue feeding the beast, if you will, yeah. and not just rely on the the shine that comes from a publicity mention or, or a, a PR boost. And again, you know, um, we failed in that because we, we didn't have the proper marketing, marketing infrastructure. We, we tried really hard, you know, but we were just a bunch of kids mm. and, you know, we didn't, we didn't really know how to hard market a product. So who was on the team at this point? Was it still just you and Alex? No, you know, it was myself, Alex, and a couple other recent graduates from the University of Florida, um, all incredibly hardworking and all really passionate about the product. Um, and looking back on it now, I think that was their biggest asset, right? They were very passionate. They, they believed in the vision Alex and I had, um, and uh, we were fortunate enough that they were willing to sacrifice a lot to, to help assist, try and bring this vision to life. But... You know, unfortunately, passion by itself is, isn't you know isn't always enough, mm. um, and we had to we had to figure out a more sustainable way of um, of driving in traffic and driving in sales. So, if I could, you know, um, I'll, I'll fast forward uh, a year to uh, to late 2013. You know, so now we're almost we're more than four years in, and it, it's really when Alex and I realized that. You know, for us, especially as a vertically integrated, digitally native e-commerce company, nothing else mattered for us other than sales. Like there were, there were no vanity metrics that would do us any good. Mm. Um, you know, if we were trying to showing, if we were trying to show professional uh, investors anything else other than sales, customer acquisition, growth. And so, um, in in October of 2013, we were fortunate to bring on our first. You know, CMO, Chief Marketing Officer Herb Jones. You know, he was the first guy who you know, had "quote unquote" you know, gray hair. He was the first guy on the team that we had brought on um, who had actually done marketing before, um, <laughs> and you know, he had done what he had claimed what, what his job was before, and you know, it was it was a huge hire for us. And he really helped write the ship and turn things around because he brought in a structure. He brought in a mm. formula, a plan yeah. that um, prior to that point, we, we really hadn't had. Wow. Up until 2013. So up in, from 2009 to 2013, you guys were just kind of like winging it. Like whatever works, you're just yep. like, let's do that again. And then if that didn't work, let, let's do something else. 
Exactly. Yeah. No. No. Really. No rhyme or reason. Just uh, straight up throwing things on the wall and seeing what sticks. Um, and, and there are things that we tried that we thought would work and that didn't. Right. For example, uh, we were on the Today Show um, it, it, as part of a product segment, and we thought that was it, Phil. Like you know, it was one of those things where I was like, oh man, here it goes. You know, we're going to be on the Today Show, and then you know, next year it's on the four, on the cover of Forbes, and next year it's on the cover of Time Magazine. Like. I didn't see it in my head. I thought that that's what it was going to be like um, because I was drinking the Kool-Aid so, so much that, you know, mm. that's what I thought. That's how I thought all journeys went in, in consumer companies. Um, and I remember watching the segment and then just bracing for this massive surge of orders to come in and nothing, just crickets. Um, wow. Nothing happened. And uh, it, it wasn't because of anything uh, the, the Today Show folks did. It wasn't, you know, they didn't, they didn't, you know, um, shoot down the prompt or anything like that. But um, the 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 format of that segment on the program just wasn't conducive to explaining what a new consumer product was. Mm. Um, it was more of like a quick hit. This would be a great gift. This would be a great gift. This would be a great gift. You know, they would flash the website underneath each product, uh, each product, and that's it. Um, and it just didn't fit for us. And, you know, it was one of those things where it was a hard lesson to learn that, you know, not all PR works and, you know, don't take for granted that just because you're going to be on a a big name show, you know, magically it's going to, it's going to make things happen for you. Yeah. No, I think that's a great point because what a lot of startups are kind of guilty on and myself included is like, we do chase the articles, the Forbes, the, you know, the front of the Today Show or the New York Times, and it's not going to move the needle. And sometimes it's kind of a question of like, why do we want those things so much? And what's the real reason? Is it for our own egos or is it actually to move the company forward? Um, so I think that's yeah. actually a really yeah. good point. Yeah. Um, in terms of like the company, so I noticed online, and maybe this is out of date, but you guys kind of raised money in various tranches, right? <laughs> so you haven't taken yeah, any did. kind of institutional investment, have you? So VCs. Yeah, we, 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 we have a little, right? So um, thus far, um, in, in totality, we've raised just under $2 million. Right. Um, and the breakdown kind of goes like this. So the first 430000 was really, excuse me, um, like I discussed uh, from my, my, my father and friends and family, if you will. And the remainder was through um, angel funds and you know, early stage VCs. Um, but I'll tell you, I'll tell you what I learned so much, uh, about fundraising through the process. Uh, and I, I will say that I kind of fell into that trap where I felt like fundraising was the end goal, you know, not the means to an end. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very, that's a very distinct difference. Uh, I thought that we were successful just by the sheer fact that we had raised money um, because you know that is a feather in a cap in the cap of a lot of startups, right? You know how many articles have we seen where you know the the press is heaping praise upon a a, a startup or a company just for raising the money, mm. and it, it is an accomplishment. Don't get me wrong; uh, I have nothing against those companies, but um, for, from my perspective, I just wanted to be like those companies. I just wanted to raise a ton of money because I thought it was cool because I thought it it was really the the end goal, and for us. It absolutely was not. Again, I mentioned that you know, we're, we were a vertically integrated company. Uh, we we had to pour money, um, all the money we raised, into the production process, into the equipment. Right, our our printer was close to a half million dollars. Right, so wow. you know there, there there was a lot of machinery that we had to invest in um, that required a lot of capital. So once we had finished raising that money, though we quickly realized that we were falling into this vicious cycle of wanting to raise more money just to survive. Mm. And that is not a, that is not a good habit. That is not sustainable. So along, along with our, our desire for growth in, in 2013, um, late 2013, early 2014 was a, I think was a more clear eyed desire to want to be sustainable on our own. Um, I didn't like the taste that was left in my mouth from, just struggling uh, to survive and wanting to raise money uh, just to survive. Uh, so I, you know, we kind of made a promise to ourselves that we wouldn't raise any more money unless it was on our terms, unless it was for growth, not survival, um, and unless we were already uh, stable and, and profitable on our own. That's a really, um, 
I mean, it's definitely amicable, but something that you don't hear a lot about in the startup community. Um, and it's risky, you know? I mean, it takes a while yeah, totally. to figure out product market fit and actually to get, you know, sales where you can sustain yourself. But to say, like, well, stake in the ground, we're not going to raise any more money. How did the team take that? You know, I think I think they actually took it really well and really uh, productively because they had kind of been through the motions and the roller coaster ride of what it felt like to try and raise money. Mm. And I think they were also up for the challenge of finally weaning ourselves off the hamster wheel of raising money to just um, be our own, uh, to, to basically uh, you know um, to take charge of our own destiny, right? If you will, right? Like not have our fortunes in in someone else's hands or, or investors' hands. Um, I'm incredibly grateful for the investors we had and have because without them, we, we simply wouldn't be here. And they showed a ton of patience when we had no idea what we were doing. And I feel like less patient investors could have just pulled the plug. Yeah. And, you know, and I don't take that for granted uh, to this day. But at a certain point, to me personally, you know, I it just I, I was just scolding myself because it just got a little ridiculous. Um, you know, I knew we could do better than just continue to raise money when we had a product that was very cool yeah. and it needed to survive on its own. Uh, I think that was the only thing that would have made me sleep well at night. Yeah, for sure. So now, you know, where you guys are nine years in, you've raised $2 million. So you're obviously doing something right. What has been, what has been working for you guys? Sure. So, uh, you know, the there's never been a magic bullet. There never will be, but I, I do think that everything started when we brought on Herb as our as our CMO, um, because again, he introduced a, a structure for marketing that was more methodical, more formulaic, um, and he he had come from a background of doing a lot of research on e-commerce companies and and how to build a marketing organization. So um, we first had to really uh, honestly feel one of the first things we did. Not in, in a neat straight line, but we had to take stock of what our product was and what sort of marketing made sense. Mm. And this was very a, a very critical kind of educational time for us in that we had to realize that you know um, Fracture is a pretty unique product. It, it didn't have a lot of reference points. So reference points. So the, the thing that we really needed to do was educate the customer. We couldn't just uh, promote the product in terms of like, hey, here's 20% of a fracture. People didn't know what a fracture was. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, at that time, if you typed in fracture, you would still get, you know, bone breaks as, as, you know, as a top result. Like, yeah. you know, we weren't, we weren't resonating with people on a, on a basic level. So we first had to invest in educating the customer and invest in a lot of brand awareness. So, you know, um, as luck would have it, one of the things that we found working really well for us was video advertising, like literally TV advertising. Wow. So um, we were featured on a TV show uh, on a channel called uh, the DIY Network, the Do-It-Yourself Network. Yeah. Um, and they featured us as a, as a cool home decor product. And kind of like TechCrunch several years ago, uh, every time that segment aired, we would see sales jump. And so we just connected the dots and we kind of reverse engineered why it was working. And it was because they were introducing the product in a very basic way. They were saying, hey, this is a fracture. What is a fracture? It's a new type of, of photo print where you're able to print directly on glass. And it's an all-in-one product. And it just clicked for us that that is what we needed to do on a more aggressive, on a more scaled level. So we invested in a kick-ass commercial and a kick-ass video. And we started um, advertising on TV um, and, and slowly building that up. And, and after that, we said, okay, well, that's the, the net that we're casting. That's the top of the funnel, that brand awareness play. Mm. Uh, so from there, we're going to have to kind of build out the rest of the funnel in terms of once someone's heard about us and come to the website, uh, we need to uh, retarget them. Uh, we need to collect their email address. We need to you know, invest in... Uh, and, and better uh, email marketing and and social media advertising. So it was this it was this um, period of time over a number of years where we um, slowly built out this marketing stack that was, in our opinion, really robust and had a had an alignment reason to it. That, and I think that's ultimately been uh, has been the engine for for a lot of our marketing success success over the past couple of years. Yeah, that's that's pretty amazing. And just as, even just the way you've broken it down there, it just sounds very methodical very well thought through. Like, I think what you guys wanted to understand first was who was, like, who are our audience? 
and then you guys figure it right, out. Is it right. still the DIY community now? Do you say? Oh, uh, so not not exactly. I think there's a, there's a huge DIY community out there, but the so you actually hit, hit upon a great point. Right? Who is our audience? Um, and so that that conversation can can kind of go two ways, right? Who who do you want your audience to be versus who is actually yeah. listening, and watching, and reacting to your product? And again, yeah. that's a huge lesson learned and kind of a huge um, ego uh, uh, slap for me, which was like I wanted our audience to be, you know, um, you know, all the cool, uh, the early adopters, the the, the tech users, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. But that's not necessarily who was watching the DIY network, right? It was families, um, middle aged individuals, yeah. people who uh, who was watching home and garden television or the DIY network. And so we had to kind of embrace the fact that we had a pretty um, diverse and widespread user base um, and demographic, and we needed to break them up into you know, distinct personas and understand how to market to each of them. And so um, <laughs> that may sound coherent now, but it was, yeah, <laughs> it, it's, it's with the luxury of hindsight. Um, you know, as, we were, as we were going through it, it was definitely a little bit more chaotic and much more reactive, right? Um, so the beauty about digital advertising um, and analytics was that we were slowly able to gain an understanding of how to uh, reach out to each persona, uh, what resonated with each persona, um, and then how to cater our advertising to each persona. I mean, it's not perfect. Um, you know, I don't think it ever will be, but it's definitely a lot cleaner uh, than, it, than it was before. No, yeah, no, that's really good. That's really good. So I guess I want to shift gears a little bit now and speak about kind of like e-commerce in a general sense. So for those people mm-hmm. who are about to start an e-commerce business, like with everything that you've learned up until now, what are the, what would you say the necessary steps are to take? Sure, sure. Um, I, I think the first one that comes to mind is something that we hadn't done a good job at. I think we're, we're just really trying to figure out and it's understanding understanding branding, um, understanding the, the identity of your company and branding isn't just, you know, isn't just design, right? Isn't, isn't just the business cards. It's, it's what do you want your company to be about? What are the, the values, uh, and the mission, uh, what is the mission of the company and how do you convey that to your audience? Uh, I think we're, we're in this age, we're in this day and age now where there's so much noise, um, in the world, especially in terms of advertising, that you really have to have a unique value proposition to cut through that noise and resonate with customers. Yeah. And I don't think enough enough um, people really appreciate the power of branding. They, they just think about it in a very superficial perspective. And it, it goes way deeper than that. And, and so um, I think one of the first things that you need to do when you're, when you're building an e-commerce business, especially one that's consumer-oriented, is really think through your branding, make sure it's cohesive, uh, make sure that it's um, coherent. Make sure that you're able to actually articulate it well to consumers, and that you um, know based on your values who your demographic is, right? And, and be realistic about uh, who your dem- who demographic is and uh, who you, who your product will ultimately you know connect with. Yeah, that's good. And then once someone's established the branding, then it's kind of like all right, everything else should kind of like fall into place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I think I think again, it's kind of a it's it's a two step tango, right? So once the branding is going on, and once you've actually because branding is truly an iterative journey, uh, where you have a, a good brand, but you it'll evolve over time as everything as I think every good brand should. But after doing so, it, it, it's kind of like when you when you see an incredibly beautiful car, you know the it looks great, it's got a great paint job, it, it's shiny, it's beautiful, but. Um, what the magic is really what's underneath the hood, right? And so while the, the brand looks really good um, and feels really good and and conveys well, you really need to do your due diligence in building out that infrastructure, right? Like I said, the, the marketing, the the nuts and bolts that is is not glamorous, is not sexy, takes a lot of time and mm. um, iteration, but will really fuel your business sustainably. Um, I just, I think that people... Um, again, get caught up in the, the, the flashy, shiny stuff, which for a select group of companies, maybe that's all it takes. But for the vast, like the majority of companies, you really have to have to know your, 
know your product, know your game uh, in terms of how to market it well in a, in a methodical, formulaic way. Yeah, no, that's good. Again, let's switch into some of the rapid fire questions. Um, so who's been your biggest inspiration today? Uh, I think it's, this is going to be a pretty um, uh, expected answer, but for me, it's, it's my father um, if for, some, for some unique reasons. So my, my father's a doctor, he's a private practice, but as I've started the business and the business has grown, I've come to really pre- appreciate uh, a lot of the, the patient moves he's made that don't really pay off for a decade, a decade and a half. Wow. But when they pay off, they pay off incredibly well, right? And I just think um, I, I really have come to appreciate his business acumen, his, his patience, his, you know, um, his very like Warren Buffett, Yoda-like demeanor <laughs> uh, in, in terms of um, playing the long game. And that, I really, I really uh, admired his, his patience and his his, his persistence and his diligence. Um, I, you, you just don't see a lot of that being lionized in the media. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I was grateful to have that sort of resource uh, right next to me. That's good. Uh, favorite podcasts? Oh man, you know I I, I listen to a, a number, um, uh, but right now I'm actually very so let me actually take a step back as i'm sure you can attest to um starting your own company is a 24 7 thing it's something that consumes your life um and honestly when i look to things like podcasts and books i want to step away from my life and kind of escape a little bit Mm. um so uh, for me i'm actually getting more and more interested in in uh I've always had a thing for uh, mythology and, and um, you know ancient mythology. I think there's a lot to learn there. So there's there's a podcast called Myths and Legends. Mm. That is something that I just find uh, really uh, entertaining and really of value to me because it allows me to escape and also learn all the lessons that are kind of woven into um, ancient mythological tales. Wow, that's good. And I guess you're also a listener of law, which is where I actually came across you guys. <laughs> uh, could you, what was that last part? You know, Lore, the podcast. Oh yeah, 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 Lore. Yeah, that was exactly. I mean, that's that's. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. Um, I, I love that podcast, and we were really geeked out to be able to uh, to to advertise on it to sponsor it. Yeah, no, it's a great show. Um, who knew I was into folklore? Who knew? Um, yeah, exactly. Who's and favorite blog? Sure. So oh, this one is one that I really uh, love. It's called uh, Strong Words. Uh, it's it's a blog by Bryce Roberts, who who's a VC, and um, he actually uh, I, I came upon his uh, his blog because he, he he started a fund called Indie.VC, and it resonated with me because it's all about uh, thinking about businesses in a in a more unique way uh, than what what's normally hyped in the media, which is like the the fast growth, explosive businesses. So yeah, it's it, his his blog articles are about topics like profitability and, you know, um, and more, uh, more reasonable returns, um, real businesses. Um, you know, maybe if scale isn't always the, the end all, you know, be all for, for businesses. So I just loved his perspective. Um, I reached out to him. We've talked a couple times, uh, but he's just, I, I loved his more, I think, measured approach to, to building a sustainable business. Mm. There's another guy called, Paul Grossinger, who we've had on the show, who's got like a similar philosophy in terms of oh, how, very cool. who, how startups should operate. And it's not all about, you know, trying to scale and raise $50 million, like actually running the sustainable, profitable business is actually way more attractive than actually raising all that money. Um, so you should check him out. Exactly. Well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, favorite book? Favorite book? Um, a ton. Um, Actually, I, I read a lot of uh, audiobooks, and um, one that I just finished is um, *Sapiens* uh, by yes. uh, Yuval Noah Harari. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a fascinating read. I, I've told anyone who I can tell uh, about this book uh, because it, it, it's it's it, the, the subtitle is *A Brief History of, uh, of Humankind*, I believe, yeah. and it's just really engrossing in the way he weaves the the tale or the, the story of. Uh, mankind all the way from 
Homo sapiens and Homo erectus mm-hmm. up until like uh, the 20th century, and it's just very thought provoking. He, you talk, he talks about history in a way that's just incredibly engrossing and really thought provoking. So I would highly recommend that book. Are you going to read Homo sapiens as well? Oh, okay, cool. No, I said, are you going to read Homo sapiens, the second one? Oh, oh, I, I didn't. I actually haven't heard of that one. Is that is that? Uh, it's like the. It's oh, the, that. It's the, it's the part two of the book. The part two. Okay, got you. No, I definitely. And there's another one called like Homo Deus, I think, which is um in that series as well but I, that's that's on my list yeah awesome uh favorite instagram account <laughs> Oof. uh i will actually um I, I don't have one uh uh sorry to say the, the not that i don't like instagram um, i'm actually just really late to the game i feel like i'm just starting to discover instagram and get involved in it more and more um, and it's actually really fun for me because I feel like I just discovered something really new. So I haven't found a favorite one just yet, but I'm just astonished at the, the community that's on Instagram. And I'm just right now just trying to like uh, point the fire hose in a, little, in a different direction a little bit and try to like take a breath and kind of sort through everything that I'm learning about Instagram. Okay, got it. Um, so here's a question. It's a new question I've added to mine quiver um what do you wish you could do that you currently can't do oh man uh that is a very good one uh the first wish that immediately comes to mind is the the wish to uh be fluent in multiple languages Mm. um i think i think language and um uh, linguistics is a a beautiful thing and it's in, in my opinion it's one of the most healthy things you can do for your mind and your, um, and, and just your, your intellect. And I wish I had the patience, um, and the time to, to learn and immerse myself in multiple languages. They're just beautiful. Uh, and to be able to communicate with people from different cultures and to go to cities and to be able to interact with, with those communities, uh, would be incredible. And, um, they're just incredible languages, Hindi, uh, I, I, I learned Spanish in school. I wish I could tell you I remembered all of it. Uh, <laughs> French, you know, Italian. There's just so many beautiful languages out there. I wish I could learn a lot of them. Yeah, Urdu as well is a good one. Um, what advice would you give to your 21-year-old self? Oh, man, be patient. Um, I think this is just something that um, I even have to tell myself now and I'm, I'm about to turn 30. But yeah, uh, I, it's... I... I was far too naive um, thinking about how quickly I expected us to hit certain levels. Um, but like I said, you know, to give you an idea, I, I thought we were going to hit uh, 25 million within five years. You know, we'll, we'll probably do uh, 12 to 13 million this year, which is which is great. Yeah. But it's um, it's just taking us closer to 10 years. So yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I I'm basically growing at. Uh, uh, half the size and double the time. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wish I could t- t- tell myself that. Okay, that's good. Uh, if you had $100 in your favorite city, what do you spend it on? The street food. <laughs> I would I would run around to every stall and uh, try and find the best home-to-wall restaurants. Um, and, and for example, you know, I'm going to London. I've heard incredible things about the the cuisine and then the food. I think you learn a lot about a city through its food. Mm. I think food is a huge part of culture. Um, so I would invest in in the best food and the best food tips on where to get the, where to get the best food. Yeah, for sure. Well, lucky for you, I'm actually in London, so you just need to email me. Um, there you go. <laughs> um, what's the one thing startups should ignore in the early days? Hmm. What's the one thing? Uh, I, I feel like, at least from my perspective, I think it's the it's the allure of of, of fundraising, right? And at least fundraising for the wrong reasons. I think um, let's go with this. Let's go with vanity metrics. I think there are a lot of vanity metrics that startups pursue in the hopes that it will get them, it will help them close that round or or. Um, Generate generate that PR hit, that PR boost, and I think startups just need to be able to recognize what are the metrics that really matter mm-hmm. um, in terms of profitability, sustainability, uh, real, real, meaningful growth, and and invest in that. 
Um, I'm not telling you to, you know, to, to stick your head in the sand, but I think there you, know, you need to be very clear-eyed and cognizant of what the real growth metrics are for you um, instead of you know uh, what could be considered more vanity metrics for your industry. Yeah, no, that's good. I totally agree. And finally, what's the vision for Fracture? Sure, this is something that I, I've learned. I've kind of um, become more and more passionate about over the past uh, couple of years. You know, for us, we want to, uh, I want to be the, the leading photo decor brand in the world, right? I want to help people focus on moments that matter. That's actually the, the mission for, for Fracture. And what that means is building this, building this company uh, of very diverse people. I think one of the greatest things about us is that we are vertically integrated. So we have a production manufacturing facility that has, um, that employs people from all walks of life. Um, you know, blue collar, white collar, no collar hoodie, right? Like it's, it's just yeah. whoever, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's a fascinating mix of people and to, to demonstrate that you can be a, a strong, uh, high growth, you know, um, and really well-known company, um, the right way um, yeah. and, and to build it for the right reasons and to have a, a physical real product, right? Something that you can touch, you can, you can uh, embrace. And I think that's something um, really cool about us that not a lot of companies can, uh, can get to, to evangelize having a real physical product um, that's, that's internationally known. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And I think that's a really good point that you that you make in terms of like having such an eclectic mix of people and having that being the focus just kind of sets the target yep. for I guess the direction the company wants to go in. So I think that's great. Yep. Abdi, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh where can people find you if they want to get in contact with you? Sure. So um you can find me on LinkedIn, my you know my handle is just Abilokesh. You can find me on Instagram, my hands my handle is Abilokesh. Um the, the website is fracture.me um, you can also find my, my email address there. Um, I, I, I love hearing feedback about the product. I love hearing feedback about what we're doing. I just love also just hearing from people with any thoughts, perspective, advice. Um, I'm all ears, so I'm looking forward to, to hearing from anyone, everyone. Awesome. That's awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, I appreciate it, Phil. It was awesome. Once again, I want to say another massive thank you to Abby for coming on the show and sharing so much with us. I love how we spoke about marketing in the early days. It's so easy to get caught up with PR and think that that's a sustainable marketing channel when it's not. I also love how self-aware they both were to know that marketing just wasn't their thing and so they got the right person in. I think a lot of first-time founders, including myself, struggle with knowing what we're good at and what we're not good at and try to do everything ourselves. It really does get you nowhere. As always guys, thanks so much for tuning in. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and leave a review on the Apple Podcasting app. They honestly do go a long way. Until next time guys, keep grinding.